truly do have a, a wonder to them. They are wonderful, wonderful, powerful, and sometimes harmful and damaging. And the scriptures actually have a good bit to say about that. I'd like to get our minds thinking about the power and wonder of words this morning just by reminding you of a few things that the scriptures say. Proverbs has much to say about our words and how we use them and what they can do. Proverbs 18.21 begins, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. It's interesting the way that Solomon turns that phrase around. Normally we would speak of life and death. But he says death and life as though the accent and emphasis ought to be on the death power that words can have. There's a warning in these verses about how our words can impact others and impact the world around us quite negatively. Proverbs 25.11 gives the more positive picture. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Yes, words can be quite beautiful and attractive uh, and alluring even. But again, the accent in the whole of Scripture, if we were to weigh the balances a little bit, tips over to the negative side. And we, can, we probably are all familiar with the warnings of the Apostle James about the power of the tongue. Let me remind you of some of those things. James chapter 3, verse 2 the tongue is, uh, James 3, 2, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. And then a few verses later in verse 6, James 3, 6, he says, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. And then two more verses later, James 3, 8, No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Not a pretty picture of that thing that wags in your mouth. And that is the testimony of the Scripture. There's a danger to the way that we use our words. And I begin there this morning. We are returning to the book of Judges. And our story in Judges this morning is about a judge named Jephthah. And Jephthah uses his words to great effect. Both good and ill, perhaps, but certainly mostly ill. Uh, and so we want to look at a little bit of the, the ways that Jephthah the judge uses his words and causes all manner of chaos by them. And so we'll unpack that story as we dive back into the book of Judges. We're going to pick up at the end of chapter 10 and read all the way through Judges chapter 11 to pick up the story of Jephthah here. So I invite you to open there and follow along as we read through these verses, picking up in Judges chapter 10, verse 17. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mitzpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons, 
And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and Yahweh gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, Yahweh will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before Yahweh at Mitzpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahatz and fought with Israel. And Yahweh, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites, from the Arnon to the Jabbok, and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then, Yahweh, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel... And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that Yahweh, our God, has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel, or did he ever go to war with them? 
While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Aroer and its villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I, therefore, have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. Yahweh, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Then the spirit of Yahweh was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mitzpah of Gilead, and from Mitzpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to Yahweh and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be Yahweh's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and Yahweh gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Aroer to the neighborhood of Meneth, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Karamim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mitzpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to Yahweh, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to Yahweh. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that Yahweh has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. It's a very sad story, all told. We are here reading about another judge of Israel, and we have been accustomed in this book to see Yahweh, the Lord, God, raising up these judges to deliver the people from the hands of these foreign oppressors. And that's actually a detail that we don't see very clearly in this story. We would expect to read about Yahweh raising up Jephthah to deliver the people of Israel from the hand of the Ammonites, but that is not what we read. Instead, we see very much a human process going on. God does show up in the story, so to speak, but His silence throughout the story is what is so remarkable. Jephthah is the one who speaks most of all in this story, and we get his perspective, his vantage point, and his words, and the chaos that they bring among the people. So let's look and see the situation that's here and how Jephthah comes 
into his position here. Verses 17 and 18 of chapter 10 present the need for a head. So the Gileadites and the territory of Gilead is a way of referring to all of the territory that Israel possessed on the east side of the Jordan River. So if you remember in the story through the book of Numbers as the Israelites wandered through the wilderness and Gideon... Jephthah even refers to that story some in his uh, discussion with the Ammonite king here. They had a fight with Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and they took his land. And Moses gave that land to the tribes of Reuben and Gad and half of Manasseh. And Gilead is a way of to refer a way of referring to all of that territory on the east side of the Jordan River. So that's where we're talking about, and that's the group of people that we're talking about. So the Ammonites have come in and have threatened them. They've pulled in their armies and they're ready to fight against them. If we were to go back earlier in chapter 10, we would see that the Ammonites have been giving them trouble for the past 18 years at this point. The Ammonites have been coming in, raiding them, pillaging them, and otherwise oppressing them. And now they're coming to finally just take the land back. That's their goal here. Well, the Gileadites begin thinking, what are we going to do about this? And so they begin to look for a head, a ruler, someone who can not only lead them into battle, but also lead them as a people and govern them in a way that would keep them safe. That's their goal. That's their outcome. But we should notice here that this is not initiated by God, the way that other judges have been raised up. The elders of Gilead here kind of usurp the rightful role of Yahweh. He is the one who's been raising up these judges, deliverers for the people. But here we don't see the elders praying or seeking God's guidance in any way whatsoever. We're beginning to see more and more how clearly everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes during this period of Israel's history. You might recognize that phrase from later in the book of Judges. It's going to become prominent in the last four or five chapters of the book. It's going to be repeated, I think, four times that the people do what is right in their own eyes. And we already see that in evidence here. And once you read through the whole book of Judges, you almost have to go read it again with that perspective in mind from the beginning. The whole period is characterized by people doing what is right in their own eyes. And so we see the elders kind of attempting to find a leader among their own people, and they can't find anybody. They can't find anybody suitable for the job to be head, and so then they're going to go look for someone somewhere else. And they remember Jephthah. In chapter 11, we get a little bit of a flashback to kind of tell the story of Jephthah and who he was. We learn about his qualifications, if you will, in verses 1 through 3. The narrator tells us about him, and he uses some phrases that ought to kind of peak our memory about the rest of what we've read in the book of Judges. Uh, But first, Jephthah's name means he opens. He opens. And if you think about it, his mother might have named him that to mean to be a reference to him being the firstborn son. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, uh, the, the one who opens the womb is a way of speaking of the firstborn of uh, a particular family. And so uh, that might be what she was thinking, that this is her firstborn, and so that you're going to name him something that means he opens. Otherwise, maybe they intend to name him God opens. And the idea would be God has given us a son, and God has given us this first opening of the womb. But of course, his name is going to take on an ironic meaning throughout his story, because Jephthah is going to become known for as the one who opens his mouth, 
quite a lot. And so his name takes on this ironic twist in the story. But otherwise, the narrator tells us that, first of all, in verse 1, he was a mighty warrior. And that phrase should remind us of Gideon. Gideon was referred to as a mighty warrior. And so at that point, as you read this, you should be thinking, okay, so Jephthah might be like Gideon. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? When you know the whole story of Gideon, it's not a very good thing. Well, then he goes on and he tells us not only is he a mighty warrior, but he was a son of a prostitute. And that should remind us a little bit of Abimelech, the son of Gideon who caused so much grief for the people of Israel in chapter 9. And so now the narrator is kind of connecting him to Abimelech. So now we're thinking, oh no, this guy's going to be another Abimelech-like person. That's not good. And then he further presses that connection home by saying after the brothers kind of kick him out of the family and and ensure that he's not going to have an inheritance among them, he goes off and flees to his own and he gathers around himself worthless fellows. And that phrase should remind us also of the Abimelech story from chapter 9. Abimelech hired for himself worthless fellows. So the narrator here has already moved us in a direction where we should think very poorly of Jephthah from the get-go. The narrator's characterized him in a way that should tell us before we even read anything about what he does, that this is not a very good fellow. He's like Gideon, he's like Abimelech, and that's not a very good thing. And so we find him compared to these individuals uh, from the past story already. And then we read in verses 4 through uh, 11, essentially, about how they went to fetch him when they got into trouble. The elders of Israel, go, or the elders of Gilead, go to the land of Tob, and they find him, and they ask him, notice the way they ask this in verse 6, come and be our leader. Now, in, when the situation was laid out in verses 17 and 18 of uh, chapter 10, they said, we need a head. We need a head to rule over us and to govern us. But when they have to go to Jephthah, when they can't find anybody qualified for that job among their own people, and they have to go to Jephthah, they don't want to offer him the top dog position. They're going to offer him the position of leader, a lower ranking here. You can lead us into battle, but we're not going to give you any permanent authority because we know who you are. We know you're the son of a prostitute. We know that your pedigree is all messed up. And so they don't want to give him the top dog job, so they offer him a lower rank. But then Jephthah pushes back. He doesn't say, okay, that sounds good, and then go into it. He argues with them in verse 7, and he says, didn't you hate me and drive me out from your presence? Now, when we look back at the way things unfolded in verses 1 to 3, it's Jephthah's brothers who ran him out of town, who kicked him out. And so the question kind of comes up, what's the relationship between Jephthah's brothers and the elders of Gilead. And maybe over the years, the brothers of Jephthah became some of the elders of Gilead. Or, maybe more likely, the brothers, in order to kind of make sure that he didn't have an inheritance, they had to go to the elders to get some official documentation. And so the elders kind of put their stamp of approval on the brothers kicking him out and sending him away so that he couldn't have any inheritance rights in the families. So the elders were kind of complicit in the whole exile of Jephthah from the family. And so he blames them, and he argues with them, and so they realize, okay, he's got us, we're in trouble. And so then they go ahead and offer him the position of head after all. Now, it strikes me at this point that as much as Jephthah is going to be a bad character here, we might be seeing a shadow of the Messiah even here. 
a shadow of the Messiah in the sense that this man who is despised and rejected by his own family and his own people is ultimately going to be the one that, the, that God uses to bring relief to his people, to bring salvation in a certain sense to his people. And isn't that what we see in the Messiah ultimately, one who was despised and rejected by his own people, you think of John 1.12, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But to whoever did receive him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. John 1.12. So the Messiah's career follows the pattern of Jephthah in that one regard. And so I can't help already seeing a little bit of a shadow of the Messiah, even in this story right here. And I want to, I want to mention it now up front so that we don't lose sight of that in the midst of all the grotesque things that follow. Jephthah really is a very pale and dark and ugly shadow of the Messiah, but truly and really a shadow of the Messiah in that sense. The one who was despised and rejected by his people would be the savior of his people. Well, let's look and see how this unfolds with Jephthah actually coming and taking the lead among the people and engaging with the Ammonites. He gives a history lesson in verses 12 to 28. He sends messengers to the king of the Ammonites in verse 12, and he begins by asking them, What do you have against me, that you have come to fight against me and against my land? Now, we might not think much of that, because I, I could say that you know the United States of America is my country. And in saying that, I'm just saying... I'm a citizen of this country, and so it's mine in that sense. And so we could give Jephthah the benefit of the doubt, and we could say, well, maybe that's kind of what he means, my territory, the place where I live. But it seems slightly more likely with the way that Jephthah's been painted already that he's claiming much more than that. He's not just claiming to be a citizen of this land. He's claiming to be the ruler and owner of this land. This is my land as a king. And so he's basically elevating himself to the level of king so that he can go toe-to-toe with the king of the Ammonites. He can step up and say, my land versus your land. And not so much in a citizenship kind of way, but in an ownership kind of way. And so we see Jephthah kind of elevating himself here in his status as he approaches the king of the Ammonites. And the king of the Ammonites responds pretty tersely and directly and, and basically makes a claim. He says... This land on the east side of the Jordan River belongs to me and my people. And here's why. The people of Israel, when they came out of Egypt all those years ago, they stole it from us. They stole it from us. So that's the claim. That's the argument that needs to get dealt with and settled. And so Jephthah gives this long history lesson to basically try to disprove the king of the Ammonites' claim. And so basically he's saying, Nuh-uh. We didn't do that. We didn't steal your land. You don't have a claim on this. That's the basic point. But the way that Jephthah goes about this is important. So I'm going to summarize and kind of dive in at certain points to highlight certain features of what Jephthah says in this argument. So the Ammonites are claiming land that they had never actually owned. That's the truth of the matter. They say that Israel had stolen it from them when they came out of Egypt. So the plot of land is on the east side of the Jordan River. It's bounded on the north by the Arnon River and on the south by the Jabok River. The Ammonite claim is historically false. Jephthah tells the history of this plot of land. It had been controlled by the Moabites and the Amorites in the past. 
but never the Ammonites. You've got to get your Amorites and Ammonites straight there. Two different groups of people. That's the basic point. And note that where does Jephthah get his history from? We should assume that he gets it from his Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is basically Jephthah's Bible at this point. And so he's looking back to those stories narrated in Scripture. So we can check his sources. And so we should. When we look at the details a little bit, Jephthah doesn't come off as a very careful handler of Scripture. Or we could say he's not a very good historian. Either way. (coughs) Jephthah's argument is built on three primary points. One is history. Israel took the land from the Amorites, not the Ammonites. Second point is theology. Yahweh gave us this land. If the Ammonites want land, another god will have to give it to them. And third, precedent. In the centuries that have passed since Israel came out of Egypt, no one from previous generations of the Ammonites has had an argument about that or has come to claim the land. So those are the three points. History, theology, and precedent. And at every point, there are problems in Jephthah's argument. Jephthah is often commended as an excellent diplomat in his speech. But I think his rhetoric has actually outstripped the facts. So, if you like it when a preacher gives you homework, here's some. Go home in your spare time and read the historical accounts of the events that Jephthah's talking about. Numbers chapter 21, and then the review that Moses gives in Deuteronomy chapter 2. Don't read them now. Go home and read them. That's why it's called homework. Go home and read them and check Jephthah's facts for yourself. Let me draw your attention to some details. So first of all, in the historical argument at the end of verse 17... Jephthah says that Israel sent messengers to the king of Moab. But when you go home and you consider Numbers 21 and the review in Deuteronomy 2, you, you, I don't think you'll see there any evidence that Israel did that, that they ever sent any messengers to Moab. Now, is that important? Maybe they did send them and we, Jephthah knows about it from other source. Maybe so. But... The scriptures don't tell us anything about that, and so it raises a question at this point as to what's he doing. It is actually an important point in his argument because he needs to address the fact that the Ammonites don't have a real claim to this land. And by by talking so much in this historical account about the Moabites, he's actually connecting the argument to the Ammonites because the Moabites and the Ammonites were a connected people at that time. Either the Moabites were in league with the Ammonites or they ruled over the Ammonites. A little bit unclear to me how that shakes out. But Jephthah's point in all of this in saying the people of Israel sent messengers to them, they asked for permission to go through their land, is to say that the people of Israel did everything right. They didn't do anything wrong. They did everything above board. They acted honorably and greatly with integrity. And so they've never done anything wrong against the Ammonites. That's Jephthah's point here, ultimately. To me, it seems like Jephthah's actually fudging the details of history. A good politician, Jephthah may be, but the Bible has recorded for us truthfully and accurately his twisting of the details for his own advantage. So what's my point? 
Jephthah's no better than Ammon here. Jephthah's no better than Ammon. Ammon is making a false claim. It, it turns out that the Israelites are right and they don't have any real claim to the, to the land. But in order to bolster that, in order to prove that, Jephthah engages in some falsehood too. And politicians have a tendency to do such things. But if you're not convinced about that, let's consider his theological point. It's more important. He made in verses 23 and 24. So after laying out the history, the story of Israel's conflict with Sihon and the Amorites, through which Yahweh did give Israel this plot of land on the east side of the Jordan, Jephthah says, So then Yahweh, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that Yahweh, our God, has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now, at one level, this sounds good and right, doesn't it? Israel didn't steal the land from anybody. Yahweh, their God, who owns all the land in all the world, and therefore has the right to divvy it out to anyone he wants to, gave it to Israel. So, Jephthah challenges the Ammonites. If our God gave us this land, do you think you can steal it from us? Doesn't your God have to give you the land where you live? Now, at this point, we might want to give Jephthah the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he's just arguing on the basis of their theology for the sake of argument. But there are two major problems with this. First, Chemosh is not the God of the Ammonites. Chemosh is mentioned repeatedly in Scripture as the God of the Moabites. So you can check this in your Bible. You don't have to go to any ancient Near Eastern sources to confirm it. You can check this in your Bible. Repeatedly, Chemosh is mentioned as the God of the Moabites. The God of the Ammonites is called Milcom or Molech. So maybe Jephthah was confused at this point. Maybe he can't keep straight which gods belong to which people. It, it is rather confusing, after all. Ultimately, I don't know what Jephthah's up to here. Maybe he just made a mistake, a factual error. And that's not to say that the Bible makes a factual error. The Bible accurately and truly re records the factual error that the man Jephthah made. Get that difference, right? Okay. Maybe he just made a mistake, or maybe he's trying to argue that it's actually the Moabites' God who's stronger than the Ammonite God. I don't know. I don't know what he's up to. But... Here's the big deal with this. If Jephthah were actually reflecting his Bible, if he were actually reflecting what his Bible taught him, he should not have conceded that the Ammonite God would give them territory. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 19, Moses says... And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I, Yahweh, will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. This is where we begin to remember that Ammon and Moab were the sons of Lot. And God promised territory to them as well. And so the reality is here, Jephthah should have learned that Yahweh, the God of Israel establishes the territories of the nations, all of them, even with specific reference to Ammon, just as much as he does for the nation of Israel. 
So what we're probably seeing here shouldn't surprise us very much at this point in the book of Judges. Jephthah is syncretistic. He doesn't recognize Yahweh as the only true God. That shouldn't surprise us. After all, he's like Gideon and Abimelech, both worshipers of false gods very clearly. What about the third leg of his argument, the precedent argument? The reference to 300 years in verse 26 is problematic. Now, the chronology of Judges, how these events fit on the timeline of Israel's history, is very complicated and therefore much debated. But it is likely that the time since the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, when they would have engaged with Balak and Balaam or Balaam, Uh, and the Moabites, and the time of Jephthah's life was significantly less than 300 years. Maybe Jephthah's exaggerating to bolster his point. Now, I've drawn attention to these things because I don't think we should esteem Jephthah too highly, and maybe you didn't already. The vow that he makes, of course, kind of dominates what we think of when we think of Jephthah. But I don't think Jephthah's really interested in a peaceful resolution in all of this. I mean, after all, the Gileadites have hired him to fight. They want him to come in and go to war and put the Ammonites out of, out of their land. Now, it is true, after all of this, it is true that the Ammonites are wrong. Their claim is wrong. It's wrong for them to invade Israel at this point. But we could have established that on more biblical bases than the way Jephthah does this. And... This will not be the last time in Israel's history that Israelites will look back to the Bible and twist its meaning to attempt to justify their possession of territory. But after all this bluster, Jephthah does get one thing absolutely right. His statement in verse 27 is spot on. Yahweh, the judge... Decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. Interestingly, this is the only time in the book of Judges where the title judge is applied to a specific individual. There are collective references to judges and there are descriptions of individuals judging Israel. But the absolute title is given appropriately to God alone right here. And incidentally, I think this may be the bright spot of the Jephthah story, the place where the author of Hebrews recognized true faith in Jephthah. He is professing his faith that Yahweh will settle the matter between Israel and Ammon. And so he will. So let's look at that now, Jephthah's victory. Verse 29 and then verses 32 and 33. The vow that Jephthah makes kind of interrupts the story. And I want to Look at Jephthah's vow and its fulfillment together. So I'm going to skip over verses 30 and 31 for the moment. But Jephthah's victory. It begins in verse 29 with the reference to the Spirit of Yahweh upon Jephthah. And so this is the first time that Yahweh himself actually enters the action of the story. To this point, Jephthah and the Gileadites have referred to Yahweh. They've kind of brought him in. It's almost like they've been using God for, their, for the sake of their own argument and the sake of their own ends. They've referred to him. They've called him in as witness so that God would verify and solemnify and judge anybody if they break their agreement. But at this point, Yahweh steps into the story by his spirit coming upon Jephthah. Now notice, 
that the Spirit is upon Jephthah before he makes his famous vow. That's important to remember. Yahweh will give the victory, and the reference to the Spirit coming upon him, and then the narrative of how Jephthah goes over and actually strikes them all down, conquers their cities, and they were subdued before the people of Israel. The battle's just narrated in so few words. Because again, the narrator actually makes the vow this big, huge thing that dominates our attention. The conflict and the battle is just summarized and dispensed with really quickly. But Yahweh gets the credit because it's the Spirit who comes upon Jephthah to empower him, as we've seen in the other judges, to gain the victory. God defeated the Ammonites out of pure grace. We need to make sure that we're not confused that God is somehow responding to Jephthah's vow. He's not. The Spirit had come upon Jephthah before the vow was made. And that helps us to see that this vow was completely unnecessary. Totally unnecessary for all of this to unfold the way that it did. God had already intended to use Jephthah to lead the Gileadites to victory. So let's look at Jephthah's vow. Verses 30 and 31 and then 34 to 40 to see its fulfillment. Verse 30. Note the way Jephthah words the vow. And Jephthah made a vow to Yahweh and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be Yahweh's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now, if you're reading the English Standard Version, or some other Bible versions have this as well, you might see a little footnote marker right next to the word, whatever comes out from the doors of my house, and the word it, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. And the footnote will tell you, or whoever comes out to meet me, and I will offer him up for a burnt offering. So the way that this is worded raises the terrifying question. Did Jephthah intend a human sacrifice in this vow? Was that what he was thinking from the get-go? Or was he maybe expecting an animal, a sacrificial animal, to crawl out the door and meet him when he returns home from winning the victory over the Ammonites? What was his, what was his intention? And again, if we want to give Jephthah the benefit of the doubt, we might like to say, well, surely he intended an animal at this point. The wording suggests otherwise. Now, we have to think about this very carefully. We know that the Scriptures repeatedly, repeatedly and clearly forbade the Israelites from human sacrifice, from offering humans up as burnt offerings. We know that. We could... Look at the verses, and you could do all of that on your own. However, I want to be more faithful than Jephthah was and more careful than Jephthah was with the Scriptures. We've already seen some evidence that he doesn't know his Bible really well, or at least he doesn't use it very carefully if he does. And so we might begin to say, okay, either he's ignorant or he's forgotten or he doesn't care about what God's Word says. I do. And so I must admit, and you can verify this, you can find all these verses really easy on your own in the Mosaic Law where God forbids the Israelites to offer up human sacrifices. It's actually quite specific that they are not to offer up their sons and daughters as burnt offerings. Every single time 
That's the commandment. That's the prohibition. That's the forbidding that God does. You cannot offer up your sons or daughters as burnt offerings. So if you're looking for a loophole, you could offer up somebody else. If you're looking for a loophole. Don't do that. Loopholes in God's Word are never good to try to track down. But it seems like Jephthah very much could have been anticipating one of his slaves to come out and lead the procession to celebrate his great victory over the Ammonites. It's highly unlikely, given the language that's used here, that he's expecting an animal to come out to meet him. It's possible, but seems unlikely to me. He's expecting probably a slave to come out and lead the musical party, the musical procession that will celebrate his victory over the Ammonites. And he's ready to offer up that slave as a burnt offering. Now again, technically, legalistically, according to the letter of the law, that's not forbidden. But come on. You know, if you know your Bible even cursorily, that God values human life. All of it, no matter the status. And you know that God does not call His people to kill other people. Right? It's one of the big ten. Right? You shall not murder. And that's really what's going to happen here. But if you think in Jephthah's crazy mind for a minute, a slave is maybe in his thinking a little less than human or something. Certainly not as valuable as any of my family members. And so I could rightly offer him up as a possession, as a burnt offering. Maybe that's what's going through Jephthah's mind. But in any case, he's certainly not thinking, I want to honor the Lord here. He wants to make a burnt offering, but he's really bargaining with God. He's really trying to pay God off to guarantee the victory. Now, let's just admit how stupid that is. Because the Spirit has already come upon Jephthah. The Spirit has already come upon him to mobilize him and empower him and equip him to do the job and to get the job done. Not to mention he should have known his Bible better and responded better to what he knew God had already said. But instead, he initiates this bargain with God and he says, you know, I think maybe a slave in my household would be valuable enough to get God to kind of guarantee the victory for me. I think that's Jephthah's pagan thinking here. At this point. Now, again, Jephthah, come on, man. You should have known there was a chance that your, your wife or your daughter could have come out first. I mean, come on. <laughs> now, his wife is never mentioned in the story. Maybe she's died. Maybe she's not around. But his daughter's there. He should have known. Common sense. Not just biblical sense, but common sense should have driven him here, but he's totally paganized in his thinking, it seems. So he makes this vow, and we need to think a little bit about, okay, he's made the vow, now what? I mean, what does the Mosaic Law say about vows? So let's consider that briefly and consider the other question. Now that he's made this stupid vow, could he get, up, could he get out of it and be okay? That's an important question to ask also. Deuteronomy chapter 23 gives us one of the pieces of legislation that governs the making of vows. So let's look there briefly, verses 21 to 23. Deuteronomy 23, 21 to 23. If you make a vow to Yahweh your God, 
you shall not delay fulfilling it. For Yahweh your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to Yahweh your God what you have promised with your mouth. Don't miss two things from that legislation that are really important and relevant to these verses. Number one, if you make a vow, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. Well, we're going to see Jephthah delay the fulfilling of his vow. So, whatever we think about the vow itself, and however it was supposed to work out, he delayed in fulfilling it. He broke this Mosaic law. Secondly, vows are completely voluntarily. Voluntary. They don't have to be made. There's never an occasion where you have to make a vow. It's completely voluntary. And in this particular situation with Jephthah, it was totally over-the-top unnecessary because God had already empowered him and equipped him to overcome the Ammonites. He had no need to make such a stupid vow. But he did, and therefore he is bound to it, bound to fulfill it, and bound to fulfill it without delay. But that raises the question, we know that as it turns out, whether his intention was that way or not, as it turns out, his daughter walks out the door. And at that point, he knows that to keep his vow, he must burn his daughter on an altar, which is plainly, clearly, without mitigation against the Mosaic law. No arguments, no twisting, no words about it. It's definitely against the law of Moses. So what do you do? Do I keep my vow to break the law or do I break the law to break the vow to break the law? So is he stuck? Is he trapped in this? The answer is no. No. He's not stuck. The Mosaic law makes provision for stupid things like this. I mean, aren't we glad that the scriptures actually take account of our humanity to know that we're going to do dumb things from time to time? And in this particular one, there's actually explicit wording that if Jephthah knew his Bible better, he could have responded differently. And it would have been okay. Leviticus chapter 5, verses 4 through 6 give us this legislation. Now, the legislation is specifically to do with oaths. And an oath and a vow are not technically the same thing, but they are the same kind of thing. And they are, in fact, paired up, if you want to look this up later, in Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. So, I take the legislation that governs the making of an oath here in Leviticus 5 to also count for making of vows based on Numbers 30, verse 2. So, what does Leviticus 5 tell Jephthah that he could have done? Leviticus 5, verses 4 through 6. Or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him, when he comes to know it, and he realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these, and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to Yahweh as his compensation for the sin that he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. There you go, Jephthah. You had a way out. Could have offered up a lamb or a goat. And atonement would have been made for him. 
but he didn't he either didn't know or didn't care or misunderstood the scriptures that he had to such a degree that he elevated the fulfilling of a vow over this sacrificial legislation that would have provided forgiveness for his stupidity and his wickedness. So we see what happens in the fulfilling of the vow. The daughter comes out and the narrator slows everything down in the narrative. In verse 34, you see the word behold. I hope your English Bible has the word behold there. None of our English Bibles always translate the word behold. None of them do. It's a word that's really important. It's the narrator slowing things down, and and not only that, but he's actually reaching off the page, grabbing you, the reader, by the collar, pulling you into the story, and setting you down so that you can watch what unfolds from a certain point of view. That's what the word behold means in your Bible. It's really important. The narrator wants you to come in and look here from this vantage point. So you know what you get to do at this point? You get to step into Jephthah's sandals. You get to look through his eyes. You get to see what he sees as it unfolds. So what does he see? His daughter coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. And then the narrator slows down and tells us some things that we didn't know already. She was his only child. Okay, we know what that means, but then the narrator just makes it more clear. He, she, besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. The narrator wants us to feel something here. We should grieve with Jephthah here. We've ridiculed him a little bit, mocked him a little bit, but we should grieve with him at this point. But notice... but. You just step out of the grief and then you just want to pummel Jephthah almost immediately because of the way he responds to her when he sees her. Verse 35, as soon as he saw her, he ripped his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. He blames her. He mitigates that ever so slightly. For I have opened my mouth to Yahweh, and I cannot take back my vow. Yes, you could. Yes, you could, Jephthah. But then his daughter doesn't know the Scriptures any better than he does. And whose responsibility was that? The father's. His. She pushes him and insists that he fulfill whatever the vow was that he had made. She apparently is aware of the significance of the vow or the weightiness of the vow that it's going to cost her her life. There's a focus in on her weeping for her virginity, and that's led some folks to conclude, well, he doesn't really end up sacrificing her on an altar. He ends up uh, dedicating her to service at the tabernacle for the rest of her life where she would be celibate so that she's grieving her virginity for, the re- for these two months, and then the rest of her life she's going to be serving at the tabernacle and unable to marry and produce children. Maybe. But I sincerely doubt it. If that were the case, we would expect that she would be grieving her virginity for the rest of her life, not just two months. And we would be a little bit surprised that this event would have resulted in a custom in Israel where other women would celebrate, or remember at least, the life of Jephthah's daughter every year. 
for a four-day remembrance ceremony. That would seem a little bit odd because it's a pretty common thing for a woman to give up her life to service at the tabernacle. So it seems to me that what is being grieved here is the fact that not only for the daughter's sake, but also for Jephthah's. If she's his only child and she is now going to die childless, that means that Jephthah's family line is over. And that's a big deal in the, among the people of Israel. Family lineage carrying on from generation to generation is a very, very significant thing. And so it matters when something like this happens. There's even Mosaic legislation that is put into place to prevent that from happening in in cases where the father dies without having produced any offspring. And so there are these these measures taken to make sure that this doesn't happen. Well, it does. And so it's an occasion for grief. It's an occasion for perpetual mourning and remembering when the line of an Israelite is cut off permanently. And so the grieving and mourning here that's going on is not just for Jephthah's daughter, but it's for Jephthah's line at large. I can't sugarcoat this story and make it as though it has a happy ending. Jephthah's story is not over. It will continue into chapter 12, which we'll look at next week. Spoiler alert. doesn't get any better. There's not a silver lining here except to say that God has delivered the people of Israel from the oppression of the Ammonites. That's good. So how do we come out of this as Christians reading this story? It's pretty uncommon for churches to go through the book of Judges like this. It's hard. It's hard to press through some of these terrible things. And I don't know how we're going to do the next several chapters. Once we get through Samson, after that... It's going to be tough, but we will press on to honor God's word and deliver the whole counsel of God. So what can we draw from this story for ourselves as Christians today reading this story? We should recognize the horror of human sacrifice, but there is also, when we read the larger picture of the biblical story, there's a hope in the midst of human sacrifice. So let's consider for a few minutes the horror and hope of human sacrifice. First, let me address the question, why didn't God or anybody else intervene? I mean, where is mommy here? Maybe she has died, but can you imagine a wife, a mother, sitting by idly while daddy dearest takes the knife and (laughs) executes his own daughter? I can't imagine that. Be hard-pressed to see that unfold, but in their culture, yeah, I could see it. Why doesn't anybody intervene? And I have an answer, a biblical answer, sort of. Why doesn't God intervene? Well, I think it goes back to something God said to the people in chapter 10. Judges chapter 10, verse 13. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will save you no more. Now, in one sense, God is still saving them. He's used Jephthah to get rid of the Ammonites. And in that sense, God is saving them. But in a greater sense, He is not saving them from the greater problem. The Ammonites are not the big problem for the people of Israel. The people of Israel are the big problem for the people of Israel. As it always has been and as it always shall ever be, they are their own worst enemy. And we are our own worst enemy. And so God is not saving them yet. 
from that problem. So what is going on? Why doesn't God intervene in this terrible family situation? I can point to Romans chapter 1 for some explanation of that. So let me run through some pieces of that from Romans 1. Remind you of this, I reminded you of this verse a few weeks ago in connection with Judges. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So we're seeing the outworking of God's wrath against His people in the period of the Judges. We are seeing that unfold. And then Paul in Romans 1 elaborates on what does that look like sometimes. It looks like this. Romans 1.24, the beginning of Romans 24 says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. And then in verse 25, he gives an argument, an explanation for why that is. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. So he goes on, Romans 1.26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then in verse 28 of Romans 1, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. I think it's fair to say that Jephthah is being given up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And so it is. That God is working out His judgment against the people of Israel during this period. And it is ugly, and it will get even uglier if you can imagine. Now, as we look at this whole story, we've seen Jephthah talking quite a lot. I've called him the wordy judge, but we've also noticed the silence of God in the midst of this. He doesn't speak in chapter 11. Commentator Michael Wilcock writes, It has been a story of the spoken word, even back into chapter 10. Israel opens her mouth to complain. God opens his to rebuke. The Ammonites open theirs to call one another to arms. And the Gileadites theirs to discuss what to do about it. When Jephthah comes on the scene, he opens his mouth to great effect. First in political bargaining and then in diplomacy until the final dreadful careless opening of the mouth that we've just been considering. While Yahweh is overseeing all that unfolds, and both Jephthah and his daughter refer to Yahweh by name, Yahweh himself does not speak in chapter 11. The narrator doesn't even provide an inspired evaluation of Jephthah's vow. But as I've already mentioned, God's word on this matter was plain. The Mosaic law, which Jephthah should have known, specifically and repeatedly forbade the people of Israel from sacrificing their children. And God's law also had provided a way out of a careless vow. When God has already spoken clearly on a matter in the Scriptures, we shouldn't need or want or expect Him to elaborate any further in our day-to-day circumstances. Moreover, we should notice Jephthah's apparent ignorance of Scripture and the chaos that resulted in his life because of it. Knowing the Scriptures, knowing what God has said can be a life or death issue. So let me ask you, are you taking that pursuit, the pursuit of knowing the Scriptures and handling them well, seriously in your own life? But also the silence of God in the context of this particular human sacrifice could remind us of the silence of God in the context of another human sacrifice. It is the silence of God in the flesh 
as he offers himself as a sacrifice to save sinners. When a certain Ethiopian was reading Isaiah 53 while riding home in his chariot, he came across these words, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. When the apostle Philip caught up with this Ethiopian, the Ethiopian asked him the right question. About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And then Luke, the narrator of the book of Acts, tells us, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And so we begin to see, even here, human sacrifice is actually at the heart of the gospel. Jephthah murdered his daughter. Let's not sugarcoat that in any way. Human sacrifice is an abomination to our God. But at the same time, human sacrifice is at the heart of the gospel. Jesus volunteered to sacrifice his own life after living a life of complete obedience to God. Jesus said in John 10, 17 that he was laying down his own life so that he might take it up again. He added in verse 18, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Jephthah's murder of his daughter can be viewed as a hideous, distorted reflection of the gospel. As if we held up the gospel in front of one of those bizarre carnival mirrors. God announced ahead of time the sacrifice of his son in the Old Testament scriptures. Unlike Jephthah, this was not a word vaguely spoken, a vow carelessly taken. And the outcome did not come as a shocking surprise to the father. Unlike Jephthah's daughter, Jesus was not a victim of tragic circumstances out of his control. And unlike this whole affair, which was utterly pointless, a real tragedy with no happy outcome for anyone, the death of Jesus resulted in the greatest outcome, the satisfaction of God's wrath against sinners, Victory over death and the salvation of sinners from every time and every place throughout history. Now, the sinners God saves through the only appropriate human sacrifice have the privilege and responsibility of opening our mouths to announce this good news to everyone everywhere. And so it is that Not only is human sacrifice at the heart of the gospel, human sacrifice is the right response to the gospel. In response to Jesus' self-sacrifice, God calls all of us to a kind of human sacrifice. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Like Jesus, we are to offer ourselves freely. Unlike Jesus, our self-sacrifice doesn't save anyone, ourselves or anybody else. But notice the way Paul talks about this. It is a living sacrifice. Just like in the Old Testament sense, when an animal was laid on the altar, its throat was cut, it was dead, and burned up completely, given over to God... We lay our own lives down on the altar 
giving up all of our self-concern. But we don't stay dead on the altar. We are a living sacrifice. We get up, we walk off the altar, and we live our lives to the glory of God. We turn our selfish concern over to concern for neighbor and concern for glorifying God. That is how the Christian life is to be lived, as a human sacrifice. And so it is that we are equipped and empowered by the Spirit in a greater way than Jephthah to live a life of self-denial. Jesus calls us all to take up our cross and follow Jesus. No matter where He leads, no matter how much it hurts, no matter how much we lose in this life. And doing so, we gain everything. We gain everything. To live this life of a living sacrifice, we need God's help moment by moment, day by day. So let's pray for it now.